All right, well, it's been a few weeks since we were last in the book of Ecclesiastes. We chose Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun, as our sermon series because, because we need it. Before we blindly attempt to rush back into our cherished normal lives post-COVID, Ecclesiastes says, not so fast, normal is not good, wake up. The preacher or teacher, as he calls himself, who speaks to us in Ecclesiastes, he warns us with vivid imagery about what he calls life under the sun, that is living life on earth without an abiding presence of God in your life. And he keeps describing life under the sun with this word, vanity. Our English word vanity is a translation of the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel means mist, vapor, mere breath. Picture a drop of water landing on a hot skillet. That's Hebel. Life under the sun, your life, is like a drop of water on a skillet. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is like a big punch in the gut. Or to put it another way, your life apart from God is like you riding your bike on a cozy path towards an unseen cliff. And so the preacher runs up to you, and, and he, he doesn't start chit-chatting and, and, and talking to you with small talk. No, he does what needs to be done. And what is that? He runs up, and he shoves you off your bike. You scrape your knees. You bust your lip. You sit up, and you say, what the heck is that all about? That, my friends, is the book of Ecclesiastes. The question this morning is this. Will you sit up? Will you listen? Our sermon text begins in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, and it goes through chapter 9, or 6, sorry, not 9, sorry about that, uh, verse 9. You ready? If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there is yet a higher one over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated field. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That's hebel, mist. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came... So shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and the striving after the wind. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We want to know God. We want to know his will. We want to know his way, and we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a challenging word for us. It's not for the person sitting next to us. It's for us. We need, um, we need the shove off the bike that Ecclesiastes provides us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, to know and understand what you're saying and the joy to appreciate it, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. A virus has spread around the world. No community has been exempted from its ravaging effects. It's a virus that has attacked us all. We've all been harmed by it. No, I'm not talking about COVID-19. Believe it or not, uh, what I'm speaking of has injured the world far more than that deadly virus. What I'm speaking of is a fever called affluenza. Yeah, I know, some clever sociologist created a word by mixing two words together, the word affluence, meaning to have a great deal of money or wealth, and influenza, which is a highly contagious and, and potentially deadly disease. And you mash the two together, and you get the word affluenza. Affluenza describes the problem, problems that are generated by a rich consumer culture that has an endless hunger for more and more stuff. It's a material mindset that says getting more money and possessions and fun experience in life is the ultimate aim in life. Listen, affluenza is the spirit of our age, and it has affected us all. Now, of course, no one ever thinks they have affluenza, right? We're quite certain that, that the love of money is somebody else's malady. And so can we begin this morning with this understanding? We all struggle with love of money and possessions and finding happiness and satisfaction in the things we buy. This is not just somebody else's struggle. And so as this sermon moves along, try not to think of how someone you know needs to hear this. No, allow the passage we are studying to knock you off your bike. For it's only after God has humbled you that he can then pick you up and powerfully transform you. 
Don't let pride get in the way of true joy. This sermon is for everyone here. It's for you, and it's for me. And so here's what he, the writer of Ecclesiastes, here's where he's taking us. He helps us to see that we can have all kinds of wealth, but there is something that we lack that only God can give us. And what is that? The ability to properly enjoy it. Now, what does this look like and how do we get there? Before we dig in, let me just take a second to discuss the structure. I mean, the structure of our passage follows an ancient pattern uh, called a chiasm. Just, just picture a pyramid with steps moving towards the top and then down the back side. Ancient writers used to take you up the steps to the top of the pyramid, to the main idea, the big aha moment. And then they'd walk you down the backside, solidifying it. And so as they would step down the backside of the pyramid, each line of their chiasm would line up content-wise with what was on the other side of the pyramid. Am I, you guys following? All right, don't worry. So, but the issue is this. We moderns, we don't like it that way. We like to build towards the end. We like the big, the big aha moment uh, to come at the end. And so this morning, I'm taking the structure of the ancient text and um, adapting it. So our first point comes from the first part of chapter 5 and the last step down in chapter 6. And the first point is this. Now you can start tuning in. The pursuit of wealth is incapable of satisfying you. Incapable. Please understand this. Every person who has ever pursued happiness and wealth or things that money can buy has failed. Not 99 out of 100, not 999 out of 1,000. Zero out of 8 billion people have succeeded in finding joy through the pursuit of money and the things money can buy. You doubt what I'm saying? Let me ask you, can you point to one person, just one, who at the end of their life was ever satisfied because of money? Of course you can. And yet for some reason, people lean hard into trying anyway. Are you one of them? The preacher wants us to comprehend deeply that the pursuit of wealth never satisfies, so he knocks us off our bikes. He shows us this in chapter 5, verse 8 through 12, and chapter 6, 6 through 9. Let's begin in chapter 8. Here's what we read. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the, and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. All right. We see here that the writer begins with the poor in their pursuit of the wealth. Why is that? Because you don't have to be rich to struggle with greed. Perhaps you're here and you're thinking you can tune this out because you live paycheck to paycheck, like 63% of Americans. Well, did you know that nearly 40% of Americans with annual incomes over $100,000 live paycheck to paycheck? I regularly tell my kids, don't be envious of somebody driving a Benz or a Lexus at the stoplight. It's quite likely they're living paycheck to paycheck. So no, this lust for happiness in the things we have doesn't kick in at some high income level. It's there from the beginning. Now what the writer is doing here is he's pointing out how the poor are hindered by the corruption of the rich. In other words, don't be surprised that greed exists in society at all levels and that those at the high levels are doing what? They're watching out for each other's back so that no one can rise up and take their place. So first, the writer makes the point that the pursuit of happiness is impossible because of the corruption in society. There's always somebody looking out for number one, and guess what? 
you're not him. Next, he warns those who seek to be rich in verse 10. Here's what he writes. Listen, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Listen, here's the very simple truth of this verse. No matter how much money they have, people who live for money are never satisfied. John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the richest men in the world at one time, um, someone went up and asked him how much money was enough. He famously said, just a little bit more. This isn't just a one percenter problem. Jesus warned the crowds who gathered around him. What did he say? Not to store up treasure on earth, but to store up treasure in heaven. He said, you cannot love God and money at the same time. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you treasure most is your God. And so let me ask you, if someone were to, someone close to you were to take a week off and follow you and investigate your life, see what you're doing, would they say that you treasure God or things? Would they see that you become quite an expert at using your smartphone to unlock all those marketing emails from Nordstrom's and Macy's, Marriott, and JetBlue? Those of you here with kids, what are you teaching them about your spending habits? Do your kids ever see you say no to something good? I have your love for Christ and his kingdom. Or are you really just teaching them that by your actions, that life is really about trying to be just a decent person and getting cool things? Now, to be clear, the teacher isn't saying that having wealth is the problem. As Paul would write later in 1 Timothy, it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. And with that, we try to tell ourselves, we don't have that problem. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't suffer from greed. Remember, 16 of the 38 parables of Jesus deal with money, possessions, their use our relationship with them. Jesus never condemned wealth in and of itself, but he knows how easily our hearts can make money our functional God. Remember Jesus' warning to his own disciples, take care, be on guard against all kinds of greed or covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possession. He spoke these words to who? To believers. And he said, be on guards against all kinds of greed. Greed takes many forms, my friend. Which one are you most prone to? So first he warns the poor, and then he warns those who want to be rich. Next he shows us why having more can never satisfy. You guys enjoying this so far? In verse 11 we read, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. He is saying that the more wealth you have, the more people who are living off you. Or as the notorious B.I.G. said, he's saying this. He said, more money, more problem. When I mentioned that to my daughter, Ella, she showed me the purse she carries. It's cute, isn't it? Well, you can't maybe see it, but it's a, it's a purse with a tiny dinosaur on it. And the words, more money, more problems. <laughs> and it's on both sides, so you don't miss the point. And think about it, it's true. Two homes are more problems than one. Three cars are more problems than two. And Solomon knew this well. At the height of his kingdom, he had thousands of mouths to feed each and every day. 
Now, as we look on the far side of our pyramid on that, that last step down in chapter 6, verse 7, the preacher ends by showing us how our appetites are never satisfied. Listen, never satisfied. Here is what we read. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. I mean, it's very, very simple, right? But for some reason, we have a hard time taking it in. The more food for our mouth, the more appetites we have, the less, not more, we are satisfied. Do you know that when you go shopping and find that thing you just want to buy, that a neurotransmitter in your brain called dopamine is released and it causes pleasure? I'm not joking. Feel free to Google it right now. Now listen, cocaine and meth do the same thing. They increase dopamine levels. This is why so many people, when they're feeling sad or lonely, they go shopping. And people call it what? Retail therapy. But know this, just as you need more and more coke and meth to get the same high, so too with your appetite for things. Do you see this in your own life? Can you no longer stay in the cheap hotels you used to stay in? Just can't do it. After upgrading to a Lexus, could you ever go back to a Toyota? The pursuit of wealth is highly addictive. It never satisfies you will always want more and more. Do you understand this? That's the first point. The pursuit of wealth is incapable of satisfying you. Completely incapable. And yet we try. And in light of this, our second point will kind of seem out of place. Here's the second point. It's a little long one. Okay, here it is. It is an evil thing that people are not able to find satisfaction in their possessions. That's what we see on the second step up. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. What is he saying? It's a grievous evil. That in the Hebrew, it means a sickening evil. These people had riches and then never enjoyed them. It's likely they hoarded them. They wrapped up their security or sense of success in life by all the wealth they had accumulated. Oh, they had they had hedged their bets well. In our passage, the, the man lost his fortune in a bad business venture. But it can happen in many different ways. Consider a British man named James Howells, who mistakenly, listen, mistakenly threw away a hard drive in 2013 that had 7,500 Bitcoin stored on it. At today's prices, that's over $345 million in Bitcoin. You feel bad you didn't just buy one. <laughs> Listen, he's been pleading for years with the town to let him search for it in the dump. He's even promised to share millions with the town if he finds it. They continue to say no. The preacher says it's a sickening evil that such things can happen in this world. To have things, but not the ability to enjoy them. Stop that. In verses 15 through 17, the preacher describes how this happens to all of us. People die and they cannot take anything with them as they go. Verse 16, once again, he calls this a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Or as they say, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul trailer being pulled behind it. At the end of his most profitable years on the European tour, 
Someone asked the English golfer, Simon Dyson, if there was anything that he was afraid of. Listen, here's what he said. Death. Dyson replied, I'm in a position now where I can pretty much do as I want. Dying wouldn't be good right now. Whether we make as much money as a professional golfer, like it or not, the day will come when we have to all leave it behind. So what gain is there in living for money? And yet we do. Some people wait until their deathbed to think about it, if even then. But if we're wise, listen, like, like the Solomon of Ecclesiastes, we will think about it now. Here's what Martin Luther said. He said, as I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I am living. Can you do that? Not just can you, but will you? In chapter 6, the preacher teaches us another story of a rich person who does not enjoy his wealth. Follow along. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is a great evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. It's on us all. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Nothing. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy it, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. This story is even more tragic than, than the man who lost his wealth in a bad venture. Why is this? This is a wealthy person who had 100 children. And he lived many, many years with great wealth. Did you see that he lacked nothing that his heart desired? And in verse 6, it says, even if he should live 2,000 years. All right, so now, obviously, this is a made-up person. This is hyperbole. No one has ever lived 2,000 years and fathered 100 children. But what is being said about him? Pick up on what is being said. He is saying that it is a grievous evil. It sickens the heart that a person's soul is not satisfied even after living 2,000 years in prosperity. And so here is the in-your-face in challenge. The writer has knocked you off your bike. You come to your senses. And he says, dude, stop it. Even if he had not just one lifetime, but 30 lifetimes, do the math, 2,000 years. Listen, in all your lives, you have everything that your heart desired, guess what? You will still not be satisfied. You'll always be chasing after more. It'll never end and you'll never get full. And so here's what we've been shown so far. The pursuit of wealth will never satisfy and it's not good that wealth doesn't satisfy, which should cause us to scratch our heads. On the one hand, we will never be satisfied in our wealth as we chase after it. But on the other hand, it's an evil thing that we cannot be satisfied. So which is it? The gospel says both. See, the message of Christianity is not stop having fun. Jesus is, isn't saying, no, no, no. You cannot enjoy the things you own. Cinder block houses and AM radios. That's it for you, Christians. No, listen. 
God isn't calling us to be less satisfied. He invites us to a life of greater satisfaction. Which brings us to our last point, and it's amazing. Listen, and here is where the Christian and the non-Christian alike need to be challenged. God wants his people to enjoy life. God desires our enjoyment of the wealth and the work that he gives us. How do we know this? A couple reasons. First, in our passage, the preacher repeatedly said that certain things were a grievous evil. What things? Having wealth? No. The grievous evil was that you had wealth and you couldn't enjoy it. Amazing, right? And the second reason we know God desires our enjoyment is that we were created by God, the God of abundance and joy. We are his creatures, and we're made by him to daily walk with God, fully enjoying him and his provision. Listen, especially you younger people here, you were designed, you were hardwired, hardwired by God, not just to enjoy God, but to enjoy his gift. Try to wrap your head around that. God designed you for finding pleasure in the things of this world. But, and this is a big but with one T, God designed you for finding pleasure in, in the things of this world, but not apart from him. That is what's at the top of the pyramid. And we see it so beautifully in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Turn with me there, please. Here's what we read. Behold, that's like, take a look. Get up off the ground. Behold, what I have seen to be good, not evil. Good and fitting is what? To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of life that God has given him. For this is his lot. What is he saying? It is good and fitting for us to enjoy our food, our wine, and our work. This is the life God has given us. It gets even better with verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. What, that can't be right? But no, it's true. To whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, but also and to accept his lot and rejoice, rejoice in his toil. And what does it say at the end? This is the gift of God. God has a gift for you to open. Stop chasing pleasure apart from him. It is the life wherein you really are satisfied with your wealth. Listen, you no longer fear losing it. You no longer have to hoard it. You no longer have to constantly open up your stock app to see if your portfolio is up or down. You no longer have to check this out, especially dudes. You no longer have to stack yourself up to others. You no longer live with clenched fists, but with open hands, and you freely live off less so they can joyfully give away more. And the, descri- the, the writer describes what this feels like in verse 20. Check this out, verse 20. This is it. Um, write this verse down. Memorize it. Listen. For he will not run much remember the days of his life. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God and God alone has a way of keeping you occupied with joy in your heart. Amazing. Think about all the things you chase after. 
How they keep you up late at night worrying. How they keep you occupied and anxious. But God has something better. In grace, he wants to come in into your life and occupy you. Occupy you with what? Rules? No. Occupy you with joy in your heart. Every one of us should write that verse down. If I were ever to get a tattoo, that's probably what it would be. Every time we're tempted to find satisfaction in our things apart from God, we need to hear from his word that he alone can occupy our hearts with joy. And when God is at the center and he overflows his grace into our lives, what does he say? You will not much remember the days of your life. Now, why is that a good thing? Think about it. It's what we need. Without this joy from God occupying your heart, will you not relive every financial heartbreak? Think about it. Every deal gone wrong, every dollar you left on the table, every year you put off before you began saving, every bad investment. Oh, to live without a remembrance of such things. Now, wait a minute. You say, how's this possible? Didn't the preacher, this teacher guy, just tell me that even if I live 2,000 years pursuing happiness and what I possess, that it could never satisfy? Didn't he just say that? Well, yes and no. To make sense of it all, we need to study the mayfly. Feel free to take your phone and Google mayfly. Are you familiar with the amazingly beautiful flying insect called the mayfly? The body of the mayfly has this beautiful curvature. And one of them if sets of wings are large and with this beautiful curve to them. And then the second set looks similar, but just a little bit smaller. And when you look at it, it kind of looks like a sailboat. All right, maybe not. Now, here's what you need to know about the mayfly and the adult male mayfly in particular. Listen, kids, you might find this enjoyable. Male mayflies live no longer than 24 hours. That's it. Now, before you feel sorry for them, remember that against the backdrop of eternity, our lives are just as short. Now, the question you need to, we need to answer is this. Why such a short life? Listen, it's amazing. When the male mayfly metamorphosizes, I had to practice that, metamorphosizes into its final stage as an adult, listen, they no longer have feeding organs. Hey, you heard me right. Like no throat, no stomach. The mayfly can suck on sweet nectar all it wants, but it will not, it cannot be satisfied. See, the adult stage of, for the mayfly male is for them to mate. Once it's done, they will starve to death because they cannot possibly feed and be satisfied. Now try to follow me on this. I'm not going to call any of you mayflies here. But the reason why this sermon is called Satisfaction Sold Separately is that, listen, you and I are incapable of true, lasting satisfaction on our own. Like the mayfly, you don't have the ability in you. God designed you without that ability. But here is where the writer brings us home. God makes it so he can ingest the good things that he gives us and truly be satisfied. And how does this come to us? It's a key word in the passage. Perhaps you overlooked it. It shows up twice in our text. It's the word power. 
Look again at verse 2, chapter 6. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. This is vanity. Man has everything, but he does not have power from God to enjoy the gifts of God. Now look again at verse 9 of chapter 5 and let the light bulb go off. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Listen, the power we need to enjoy wealth and work is a gift we only get from God. Because God is sovereign. Listen, he's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the wealth you have, whatever you've made, whatever you've lost. And all the wealth that you have, whether it's a little or a lot, he's allowed you to have it. No matter how much it is, until you have the grace of God that empowers you to enjoy what he has given you, you will be like the adult male male, mayfly. The best you can ever do to be like that apart from God. Now, conversely, when you've received the grace of God, you will rejoice and be happy and content. As the verse 20 states, God will keep you occupied with joy in your heart. See, my friends, God God designed us. He made us in his image without the ability to experience happiness unless our lives are interwoven with his. Satisfaction has always been sold separately. Listen, especially those of you who are young here, understand this. God is a God of abundant pleasure. God is pro-joy. God is pro-pleasure. Don't think for a second that Christianity is about rules that keep you from having fun. The reason why the the reason the reason why the first of the Ten Commandments says you shall have no other gods before me is not to ruin your life, but is to lovingly warn warn you not to fly around the world like a mayfly, trying to enjoy this world apart from the Creator who alone can give you the ability to actually enjoy life. Do you understand that? You were made by God to live with God for the few short years on earth that you've been given and then to dwell with God for all eternity in the age to come. And if you insist on living life under the sun without his loving care for your soul, then you will miss out. And not just in this short mayfly existence on earth, but you will miss out for all eternity. And so that's why God sent his son with love and with great pity for us. Jesus left glory in heaven. And he walked on this earth. He left the bends and, and he got in a hoopty, okay? 